You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemoration and Conflict in Ireland, 1920-1922. This conference took place in Queen's University, Belfast, on the 12th of June, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland. 2020 to 2023, in conjunction with the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics and the Institute of Irish Studies at Queen's University Belfast. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020 to 2023, is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. All papers at the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hub. This episode features a paper by Dr. Gavin Foster from Concordia University. The paper, Local and Family Memory of the Irish Civil War, was introduced by Dr. Marie Coleman. Our third speaker then, who has uh, winged his way all the way from Montreal in Canada, is um, Dr. Gavin Foster, who's an Associate Professor in Modern Irish History at the School of Irish Studies and the History Department in Concordia University. His research focuses a lot on on the Republican side of the Civil War and the Civil War split and looking at at political culture within the... When I say Republican, I really mean, I suppose, I largely mean anti-treaty, but looking at at culture and attitudes and issues of class um, and social status, labour, migration, all of those themes and, and linking them all to the idea of memory and the role of the Irish diaspora. And much of this was published in his 2015 um, prize-winning book, The Irish Civil War and Society, Politics, Class and Conflict, really taking the Irish Civil War from what up to then, and with the exception of Anne's book, had been very much the study of a military conflict, to delve into the context in which that war, uh, that conflict took place, to look at issues, those wider issues of, of class and, uh, and the, the Labour and the social, the socio-economic context of the civil war, and again, Gavin has has brought his work on from that, and he's in the last number of years he's been undertaking uh, oral history interviews to explore how the, po- the a later generation of the Irish diaspora look back and remember the Irish civil war, and I think that those will be some very interesting perspectives which he will share with us. Today. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. I'd like to thank uh, Marie Coleman and, and Dominic Bryan for the invitation to uh, to come up to out to Belf- over to Belfast. I guess I should say uh, to take a part in this and, and uh, be two tough acts to follow. But I do have PowerPoint, so I've got that going for me. Civil wars have long been regarded as exceptionally catastrophic and traumatizing conflicts, capable of generating sharper and more durable enmities than wars against foreigners. And I have a feeling that was. Uh, discussed back in March when um, you heard from uh, David Armitage. Um, just to give you a few examples, a few years after the anti-treaty IRA's defeat in the Irish Civil War, De Valera observed that whereas war against an outsider often tends to unite, quote, a civil war almost invariably tends to disintegrate a community. The traumatic impact of the intranationalist conflict of 1922-23 and its fraught place in Irish nationalist memory are well attested by members of the revolutionary generation. West Cork IRA Commander Liam Deasy pronounced the Civil War Ireland's greatest tragedy, quote, a moment when the country had sunk into the lowest depths in its long history. 
Robert Briscoe, the well-known anti-treaty activist, described it as the saddest and most trying time in my life. Sean Moylan, the anti-treatyite, described the Civil War as a story of failure and disruption, of bitterness and antagonism. And uh, later Free State Senator Joseph Connolly predicted the heritage of bitter discord that the treaty split would leave behind. Now, for a long time, Irish historians endorsed such dramatic verdicts on the uh, treatyite conflicts, essentially historically exceptionalist character. But more recent scholarship has questioned so singular a definition of civil war in early 20th century Ireland, pointing to nearly comparable rates of violence and destruction in the so-called forgotten northern conflict that accompanied partition. The late Peter Hart asked, quote, why should the 1922-23 conflict between nationalists be called the civil war? Similarly, Hart and others have argued that the War of Independence, 1919 to 1921, as it's typically periodized, deserves to be seen as, quote, an unacknowledged civil war, given the, IRA can- uh, the IRA's campaign against civilian spies and informers, high casualty rates for uh, Irish police and, and Irish ex-servicemen, and paramilitary and what Gemma Clark calls everyday violence or communal violence against the southern Protestant minority. Now, I would agree that vigorous questioning and reconsideration of some of the long-established verities, uh, historical verities, is obviously a very vital part of scholarly discourse. And the probing revisions of the so-called new revolutionary history uh, has continued to advance our understanding of some of the historical dynamics in the period that have been ignored or downplayed in traditional narratives. Um, Having said that, I think we have to be careful to avoid a, a kind of a reductive tendency that I'm going to pin onto uh, Irish Revisionism's founding father, T.W. Moody, uh, this tendency of treating public conceptions and narratives of Irish history as merely self-deceiving myths, to use the term he used, from which the Irish public must be mentally liberated um, by fact-wielding academics. Uh, Far from being simply a historical error in need of uh, correction by professional historians, the treatyite conflict status as the Irish Civil War in popular consciousness itself constitutes a crucial historical fact that needs to be fully appreciated and interrogated for the light it sheds on the limits of national identity and the character of nationalist mentalities and political culture during and after the revolution. I think uh, this symposium's focus on memory and conflict is an opportunity to grapple with some of these subjective meanings and legacies of the notorious war of brothers or war of friends, as it's known, that formed the Irish state. So that's sort of the first subjectivity I want to frame my paper with, the question of civil war. The second one is memory. Now, people almost instinctively think of memory and the act of remembering as something of a sort of a psychological process that's confined to inside the sort of individual's mind. Um, But the interdisciplinary field of memory studies focuses on memory as an inherently social phenomenon that gets selectively preserved and revised according to a society's or social group's needs and interests in the present. Now, since the 1990s, the so-called period of the memory boom, we've seen um, an interest in the social dimensions of memory skyrocket as evidenced by a global proliferation of public commemorations and other forms of historical remembrance, and, of course, memory's emergence as a ubiquitous concept in uh, academic discourse. Ireland, of course, has very well-developed traditions of historical memory that predate uh, this boom, but the recent commemorative mania around the Great Famine, the 1798 Rising, and then today the First World War and the Irish Revolutionary Decade um, all clearly draw energy and relevance from this global obsession with memory. Much work in the field focuses on physical memorial sites and formal commemorative activities around um, major events in national histories, um, but this too often neglects other forms and modes and contexts of social memory or cultural memory. Um, as uh, Niall O'Kisson and Guy Biner demonstrate in their work on the famine in 1798, respectively, 
beyond the official memory of the past that's cultivated and curated and archived by the state or the media and other sort of more powerful interests lie underexplored layers of what's sometimes called vernacular memory, where folklore and oral traditions, local and family history, even the landscape itself, remember history in ways that challenge or complicate memory and the silences around it at the national and global levels. Now, this brings me to the third subjectivity that's at the center of my talk today, and that is oral history. Now, oral history was long viewed with skepticism by academic historians, given the kind of inaccuracies, inconsistencies, personal biases, memory lapses, all these other distortions that are often, we often associate with uh, oral accounts. However, questioning the positivist assumptions of history, oral historians of what Guy Biner calls the, the interpretive school um, have embraced the inherent subjectivity of oral sources, valuing them not so much for what they might tell us about the objective facts of history, although there are some very good facts that you uncover in oral history, but more importantly for what they communicate about the meanings that people and social groups give to the past. As Alessandro Portelli, the great oral historian, reminds us, quote, subjectivity is as much the business of history as are the more visible facts, end of quote. And indeed, what people believe or, and remember are as constitutive of history as what actually happened, right? So um, I think there's an inherent affinity between memory studies and oral history thus formulated. As Biner notes, oral accounts are at root memory accounts. And uh, oral traditions have rightly been called uh, compilations of memories of memories. The multi-layered and evolving subjectivities of both orality and memory dovetail well with the concept of post-memory defined by Marion Hershez, and I've got the quote here on the PowerPoint, the relationship that the generation after those who witnessed cultural or collective trauma bears to the experience of those who came before. Uh, experiences that they remember, quote-unquote, only by means of stories, images, and behaviors among which they grew up. Now, while Hirsch's work focuses on the Holocaust, post-memory, sometimes known as received memory or, or um, cross-generational memory, can be applied to smaller-scale historical events or traumas, such as the Irish Civil War. Using oral history as my central methodology, but also doing archival research and, of course, engaging with memory studies, um, my current project entails interviewing uh, descendants of Civil War veterans, their children's generation and grandchildren as well, um, people involved in the Civil War, people who witnessed, experienced the Civil War, um, to explore patterns and themes in later generation memory as expressed through uh, the personal and life experiences and recollections of my interviewees, family histories and stories, commemorative and, pl and political activities, uh, local lore, and, and other things. Um, with uh, Quebec government funding, I conducted about 50 recorded and then fully transcribed interviews with nearly 60 people in, in Ireland and elsewhere. So I did do some in Canada and the U.S., but the vast majority were in Ireland. Um, and, and I also had additional contributions from a number of, of local historians and historical experts uh, who generously helped me, as well as lots of people who sent me things via email or, in, um, or uh, through the post. Uh, my project, I should note, is formally certified by Concordia University's Research Ethics Committee and is modeled on the best practices promoted by uh, Concordia's Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. So at root of this is the concept of informed consent. So before I conduct any interviews, I uh, thoroughly explain the project to people. I have a formal consent form and then give them a series of options for participation, and then they sign off on that and can change that going forward as they like. So anything that I quote or reference here in the talk are things that I've been given permission to do so. Um, by their very nature, oral accounts, family history, and local case studies 
really requires very careful contextualization and in-depth analysis from obviously the historical perspective, but also there's narrative analyses you can do of oral history accounts and, of course, memory perspectives. So, um, but be that as it may, given the time limits here, I'm going to do, rather than a single sort of close reading of a single interview or case study um, or a passage of an interview, I'm going to highlight some of the broader themes and issues in Irish Civil War post-memory and then provide some examples from my interview. So it'll be a bit sort of a buffet, kind of a little bit uh, on the surface here. Now, the first issue that demands attention uh, in any discussion of Irish Civil War memory is the revolutionary generation's oft-cited collective reticence about the Civil War. Uh, While literary critic and philosopher George Steiner has remarked that silence knows no history, there is, in fact, no shortage of historical evidence of the silences around the period. The Irish government's failure to commemorate the conflict upon which it was founded in any real permanent or wholehearted fashion was called by David Fitzpatrick a chronicle of embarrassment, Um, And a case in point being the very poorly made and short-lived cenotaph to fallen free state leaders Griffith, Collins, and later O'Higgins, which uh, Professor Dolan has astutely compared to the Napoleonic elephant of revolutionary forgetfulness that rotted outside the Bastille. I give these are just a handful of examples of some pro-treaty commemorationism, very rare ones, bottom ones in Sligo, the the top ones in Cork from uh, from, uh, infamous incident, and that's Tom Kehoe's uh, gravesite. So those are the rare kind of counterexamples. Um, In stark contrast, the Republican movement has a very robust tradition of Civil War commemoration that tends to situate the conflict within Ireland's centuries-long struggle for independence from Britain. The classic expression of this recalcitrant tradition of memory um, are the small roadside crosses to Republican victims of free state killings that Dorothy McArdle wrote about in her off-reprinted 1924 booklet, uh, Tragedies of Kerry. In many cases, these early manifestations of Civil War remembrance evolved into more elaborate memorials, the most grandiose example being sculptor Jan Goulet's massive bronze uh, memorial to the North Kerry IRA, sorry, it doesn't come out very well, um, which is situated across the road from the site of the infamous Ballyseedy massacre and unveiled in 1959. at sites like Clash Milken Caves near Causeway in North Kerry, where a small column of anti-treaty fighters sheltered in a coastal cave during a deadly siege against free state forces, there's almost an excess of memory, um, along with a simple wooden cross that's at the cliff's edge and a plaque on a nearby farm building. Um, there now stand two separate stone memorials. So here's the excess here. Um, there now stand two separate um, stone monuments um, uh, following a, a 1997 Christmas storm that toppled the original single memorial uh, that had been in place since 1950, and which itself kind of replaced the large wooden cross that had been there at least since the mid-1920s. The two memorials are tended by rival Fianna Fáil and Republican committees, which split in 1973, a political falling out informed by a feud between two estranged cousins, descendants of one of the siege's victims, who later clashed in local court over ownership of the damaged memorial. So here's a from the Kerryman newspaper, the damaged memorial. So clearly there's a lot of Republican memory there. But by remembering only one side of the conflict, or indeed one faction of one side, um, Republican memorials point to a partisan and, very, and a highly localized tradition of memory that it, you could say it's concerned with remembering at or against the political other, to borrow a phrase. Um, so it doesn't quite cultivate what you might say it would be a shared national memory of the conflicts that the state might commemorate. Um, as to archival absences, in 1932, the outgoing Cosgrave government destroyed caches of sensitive Civil War uh, files rather than let them fall into the hands of the Civil War enemies and only fragments of the anti-treaty movement's paper trail from the period have survived. But, of course, the anti-treaty IRA somewhat paradoxically kept a a huge amount of, sort of had a mania for self-documentation, so there's actually quite a lot of it. Um, And then just to kind of speed things up, I could 
if you look at whether it's the BMH project or IRA memoirs or things like the Fighting Stories series or Irish textbooks um, that were used into the 1960s, they all tend to end their coverage of the period in July 1921. So that's a standard tendency to sort of have a very selective periodization of the conflict that leaves out the Civil War. Now, such reticence has often been justified as being in the interests of the national good. There is little doubt that excessive attention to the divisive memory of the treaty conflict would not have been conducive to political stability or social cohesion in the first generations of independence. In the parlance of memory studies, divisive events like civil wars resist remembering in common, quote-unquote, that's crucial for solidifying national identity and helping societies make sense of traumatic episodes. In small-town and rural Ireland, the face-to-face character of social and economic life gave politically estranged neighbors and relatives no less incentive to suppress unpleasant memories of civil war divisions, at least publicly and outside of election time. As an interviewee in Lestole put it, that they had to put aside this bitterness because it was a farming community. And then he repeated the, uh, the, the old Irish proverb, uh, Erska Kela Awari Nadini, that people live in each other's shadows. They couldn't afford the divisions publicly. So the question arises, how did this heritage of silence impact my efforts to collect oral histories of family and communal memory of of the conflict? Can there be a post-memory of a period of history that is allegedly so widely repressed? Now, an anonymous respondent to an early online project announcement certainly thought this wasn't possible and and wrote this online. Quote, a decision was taken by the generation involved in the Civil War not to pass on the hatred engendered by this fraternal strife to their children. Consequently, many of the Civil War events were not spoken about but were buried in a conspiracy of silence. Most of the participants carried their secrets to the grave, and unlike the War of Independence, records both oral and written of the Civil War are very limited, end of quote. Now, putting aside for the moment the the dubious accuracy of such a monolithic picture of of the conflict's legacies, um, I would agree that many of the interviews that I conduct underscore just how little the Civil War was discussed by the survivors. But even here, I would say oral history is possible because when you're looking at memory, it's also part of looking at forgetting and the silences that, um, that frame it. So, uh, for example, an interviewee um, whose father and two uncles were active in FINA Aaron and the IRA in Limerick City, both before and after the treaty split, recalled, quote, My father spoke very little of the War of Independence, nothing of the Civil War. I've spoken to other people of my age who had parents, and they were exactly the same. It wasn't mentioned, end of quote. A participant in a group interview in Lestole, again, said of two local IRA leaders who joined the Free State Army, quote, their sons will tell you that they never spoke about the Civil War. Never, ever, ever. The grandson of one such man confirmed that he heard, quote, practically nothing, end of quote, about his grandfather's role in the Civil War, whereas, quote, what was handed down to the next generation was the Honorable War of Independence. I also corresponded with the elderly children of Dennis and Agnes McCullough, Dennis, of course, was a major figure in the pre-1916 IRB here in Belfast, who later moved to Dublin, where his music business on Dawson Street was heavily damaged by an IRA mine, most probably, during the Civil War. Agnes was from Wexford and, as is very well known, had very strong connections throughout the Republican movement, and including two sisters who later married prominent figures on both sides of the treaty split. Um, one of their sons recalled, quote, that any discussion at home on the Civil War was taboo up to our late teens, end of quote. He didn't bother asking about it after that because I knew that I would not get much response. They were very anxious that any bitterness should not extend to the next generation in any form. His brother independently confirmed this impression, quote, there was little communication from my parents on the subject. It seemed they didn't want to involve their children. And then their younger sister, who was born in 1930, wrote, 
The period you are interested in was never spoken of. They were not alone in that. The whole country seemed to have taken a vow of silence on the subject, end of quote. Now, as is clear, a number of, of people I, I, I spoke with attributed their elders' reticence about the Civil War to a concern to not perpetuate the political or personal enmities of the period. This is essentially that national good motive sort of operating at a personal or family level. Um, but there are other uh, additional motives and contexts. Um, wartime activities that contravened moral and social norms of ordinary civilian life were harder to justify or explain um, to oneself or, or to others in the aftermath of fighting. Um, whether as perpetrators of violence, victims of violence, or just witnesses to violence, or perhaps occupying all three categories, some veterans struggled with feelings of guilt and anger and possibly what we today, today would call post-traumatic uh, stress disorder for years afterwards. Contemporary political considerations also contributed to circumspection in later years. Active Republicans risked drawing the attention of the special branch and possibly even internment in the 40s and uh, 1950s. To quote one interviewee with strong Republican credentials on both sides, such repression, quote, had a huge effect on telling the story. So people who would be in the 1940s, they would have been in their mid-40s, early 50s, and their children would have been in maybe their teens, that age when history gets passed from one generation to another, that the subject was taboo. As some of the people I interviewed noted as children, they simply never thought to ask about the Civil War because they knew nothing about it as a distinct historical event worthy of interest. Uh, the interviewee, whose father and two uncles were active in Limerick, recalled that he, as a child, quote, he'd heard the word Civil War uh, mentioned, but it didn't mean anything to me. Uh, when grown children began to acquire an interest in family history, it's often too late because the older generation begins, uh, has already passed on often. Another consideration that was brought to my attention was that members of the, of the Civil War generation simply would not have been as inclined to speak about their feelings and experiences to their children the way modern parents um, do, probably obsessively. Um, the immigration of thousands of Civil War veterans in the 1920s, uh, particularly anti-treaty fighters and ex-internees facing political obstacles to employment, served as an additional impediment to the social memory of the Civil War. Two siblings I interviewed in Galway had an uncle who was executed by the Free State in 1923 after being captured in arms, and another who left Ireland a very bitter man, as they said, following his release from a Free State internment camp. Though they grew up with some of their father's recollections of the revolution, though he was a child during the period, the absence of the two uncles from their lives severed an important potential link to the period. An interviewee in Connemara similarly never got the chance to meet his father's three older brothers, all active Republicans who immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-1920s, never to return. Ironically, while he heard very little about the quote-unquote breakup between neighbors um, from his own father, many years later he discovered from a cousin in Boston that um, the cousin had acquired quite a bit of local detail from his emigre father, who um, remained, quote, particularly bitter about the fallout between the friends that he served with in the War of Independence. So often the bitterness of exile preserved and perpetuated memories and animosities that many people back home in Ireland thought it best to forget or at least suppress. At the same time, my role history research challenges the kind of popular notion of a universally or monolithically observed conspiracy of silence by the Civil War generation. Amidst the silences, interviewees a generation or two removed from the conflict were often able to recall a few memories or impressions of the period that they picked up. And the kind of phrases that you hear would be all the little stories or rare flashes of memory, the occasional tale, or a few snippets here and there. Second-generation exposure to the Civil War often occurred in the context of sort of everyday family life. I interviewed the daughter of Cumin Naman member Brittany Klein, later um, O'Rahilly, who worked close, closely with the Dáil Éireann government, aided the anti-treaty garrison in the Four Courts, and then worked for the Irish press. 
Um, my interviewee described the very quotidian settings in her youth when her mother would share the occasional Civil War story. Quote, my mom didn't speak that much about it, really. She, she did tell the story, you know, the four courts, all right. She'd collect me from school, and she'd sit down, and she'd often tell us a story, you know. But I wasn't really paying much attention. My focus wasn't really on her stories, but she had a great reputation as a great storyteller. An older gentleman recalled growing up in Dingle during the emergency years and how he would sneak out of bed and into his father's downstairs shop where local men often gathered to chat in the evening. Quote, I used to creep in under the counter where there were large boxes with different sized nails, and I would crawl in there and lie on the nails listening to this fantastic discussion of the war that was on at the time. But then at times it would revert back to the War of Independence or the Civil War, and then the sparks would begin to fly a little more freely. End of quote. Sometimes information on the Civil War wasn't imparted to the next generation until many years later or got passed down indirectly, indirectly via another relative um, or family friend. Another interviewee in Dingle recalled that the one Civil War incident he heard most about growing up was the, the torture and, quote-unquote, awful death of local anti-treaty volunteer Daniel, better known as Bob McCarthy. But rather than hearing about this brutal killing from his father, a mother or uncles who were all involved in the revolution, he picked it up from a man who worked for his father and who, quote, would have lived within a quarter mile um, of McCarthy and thus been privy to sort of what neighbors were saying. Another interviewee mentioned the animus towards a local man who, with two other free state officers, had presided over the prolonged torture and murder of McCarthy, um, who was ultimately drugged behind a lorry for a mile and then put in a coffin. And when they realized he wasn't fully dead, he was shot then. And this was after several days of torture. According to a local story, this officer responded to IRA threats, quote, by sending word back to Dingle somehow that at 12 noon on a Sunday, he was going to walk up the street, which he did with two 45s, essentially challenging his enemies who didn't materialize. Now, the latter detail was shared not because of its unimpeachable historical veracity, but rather, quote, as oral history. Another interviewee drew a similar distinction relating his stories as received wisdom, that is, not as memories, but just the things I heard. This underscores the social function and contexts of memory or post-memory and how in later generations, individual experiences and stories can overlap with local history, gossip, folklore, other influences. Uh, even stories and snippets that include anachronistic or apocryphal elements, elements reflecting what Guy Biner notes as the frequent ahistoricity of oral traditions help illuminate the meanings that people and communities invest in the past. In North Galway, the niece of one of five volunteers in the area executed by the Free State at Athlone. So this is a picture of 10 North Galway IRA members executed. There were, in fact, 11, but five of them were executed at Athlone, and I believe the others in Tomb. Uh, she related to me the story of how her family first learned of the execution. Quote, they weren't let know when it was happening, but they knew from the way the dogs reacted that night and the cocks crew, and they didn't like to hear cocks crowing at night or whatever, so it must be at night the executions were. And then her sibling, her brother who was there, corrected her by saying, well, the executions would take place very early in the morning. And she said, well, I suppose that it was the night before or leading up to it anyhow, because the next-door neighbors, and I'll list this a little bit, they told me they were all night saying the rosaries. Now, while the exact chronology may not be entirely accurate, the foreboding supernatural elements in the narrative, which are quite reminiscent of famine folklore, uh, situate the execution of what might be called mythic time and powerfully convey the emotional impact that such executions would have on families and tight-knit communities. Now, whereas the historiography tends to create a very rigid binary picture of Civil War political allegiances, and this would speak to something that Anne was discussing, oral history and oral traditions can complicate this picture. In North Kerry, where one still finds lingering bitterness towards the chief agents of state brutality, 
General Patty Daly, the Dublin Guards, David Nelligan. There nonetheless exists a willingness, I found, to draw more nuanced judgments about local partisans of the conflict. For example, Khan Brosnan, the North Kerry footballer and tan war fighter who became a captain in the Free State Army, remains widely respected on both sides of the treaty split, with stories circulating about how he would warn former comrades of impending Free State raids, uh, protected surrendered volunteers from abuse and murder, and even provided on-the-run men with passes to travel to GAA matches. Conversely, there were whispered accusations of betrayal that dogged an anti-treaty volunteer uh, for decades after he allegedly gave up information that led to the capture of several comrades who were subsequently killed at the Bally City atrocity. Now, the means by which the social memory of the past is shared across generations are not limited to stories that are performed sort of expressly for posterity. Sometimes the aftershocks of fraught historical events ripple across the surface of daily life in more oblique ways that kind of impress themselves upon the next generation. Interviewees who came of age in the first decades of the Free State often recalled how the suppressed bitterness of the Civil War could erupt at election time when the blood was up amongst Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil supporters, producing much excitement and commotion and even occasional violence. One interviewee in Galway shared a local story about Free State Minister Ernest Blythe's visit to the area in the 1920s, during which he was met by an angry mob who, quote, turned his little trap upside down and he was turned upside down inside it. In North Kerry, I heard of blue shirt rallies in the 1930s that attracted Republican counter demonstrators, resulting in riots and shootings and the army having to be called out. Many other interviewees remembered less dramatic instances of civil war divisions inflecting local elections up to the 1960s and 70s. The influence of later experiences on the post-memory of the civil war is evidenced by some older interviewees' tendency to anachronistically identify pro-treaty figures like Generals uh, Richard Mulcahy or Sean McKeown to identify them as blue shirts. Um, based on their post-Civil War political activities. Um, similarly, some staunchly Republican families had very negative views about de Valera in the Civil War, but these were clearly influenced by uh, his subsequent government's role in, in cracking down on Republicans. Newspapers were another aspect of family life through which the Civil War and its politics were refracted in later years. Asking what paper was read in your house growing up often elicited some very revealing insights into Civil War memory. That an interviewee's father only read the Irish press outside of the home to avoid upsetting his wife from a pro-treaty background, or that a Republican family in Limerick preferred the Irish Independent over the Irish press, such was their hatred of de Valera, suggests how later generations encountered the subtler legacies of a conflict that was waged before they were born. Now, memory is not only transmitted verbally or textually. Uh, in the absence of stories or explicit discussion of the Civil War, post-memory of the period could assume other forms. The memory of the Civil War was often physically embodied uh, in scars, injuries, and lingering health problems that veterans suffered for many years after, often succumbing to quite prematurely. To take just one example of, of really many that I've encountered, I spoke to a native of Kilkenny uh, that I interviewed in Canada who discussed how his father, who took part in the mass hunger strike in the current internment camp in 1923, how he suffered from chronic digestive problems thereafter. His dad's lingering discomfort and his mother's efforts to maintain a, mi a mild diet for him kept the Civil War period alive in the family's consciousness until the family immigrated to Canada and his dad received the necessary surgery. Now, material history and family souvenirs, such as photographs, of course, uh, as well as uniforms, prison autograph books, letters, and various personal effects can all function as mnemonic devices or forms of prosthetic memory that connect later generations to their family's history. The granddaughter of a Dublin volunteer who served in the Free State Army's Dublin Guards, I believe, and then stationed in Tralee, coincidentally, um, recalled one of the earliest memories of her grandfather was, quote, my father getting my grandfather to show me his uniform. 
So we had a free state officer's uniform and it was all in very good nick. I do remember seeing the sword and it had a hilt and there was a star on the sword, which I now know was a little free state insignia, end of quote. The families of many revolutionary veterans inherited internment camp crafts, drawings, leatherwork, macrame, Celtic crosses, and rings forged out of coins. Um, so these are forms of memory as well, how people encountered the history of the Civil War. The fascinating story about a ring that belonged to an interviewee's grandfather, and that isn't the ring, but that's one of one such rings. Um, so a, a fascinating story about a ring that belonged to an interviewee's grandfather, Seamus Devins, one of Sligo's Noble Six, as they were known, killed in notorious incidents on Ben Balbin Mountain, shows the profound effective connection that material items create to the past. The ring was given to his grandfather in May 1922 by the proprietor of a local shop in gratitude for his role in preventing looting after the IRA raided for guns. Months later, Devins was among the column of anti-treaty fighters killed at Ben Balbin, and the ring was stripped from his body by a free state soldier, though Regional General Sean McKeown succeeded in retrieving it after the widow, quote-unquote, put up a stink. The son of Seamus Devins inherited the ring when his mother died a few years later, and then he passed it on to his own son, my interviewee. In the context of very little direct family history being passed down, the grandson cherishes the ring as a deeply tangible link to his grandfather's uh, life and tragic death. Now, numerous other interviewees possess collections of family historical material that they've inherited, Others, inspired by what they knew or didn't know about parents and other relatives' role in the revolution, have, have amassed an extensive research on the period and even written books. This reliance on inherited historical sources and materials um, and then seeking out additional information from books, media, and archives is a form of genealogical or family history. But the fact that these sources are contextualized with, sort of filtered through and given meaning by people's personal memories and stories um, passed down to them creates a more complex relationship to the past that is quite, that's not quite history, nor is it quite memory, but would be that hybrid phenomenon that I, I, I would call post-memory in this context. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. To listen to many more podcasts, including podcasts from the Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland project, go to historyhub.ie.